really say? And how have we interpreted things? We've been looking at Paul's letters to the church in Corinth over the last uh, few weeks. And uh, we've just read, thank you Jacqueline, a portion there from 1 Corinthians 7. But Paul was referring to Jesus and I thought it was actually important that we also honed in on what was Jesus saying and that's why we've read the Matthew chapter and I'm going to be focusing on what was going on there what was the debate going on but just before we do that um, the reason why I have got the shirt and tie on and I'm looking a bit dapper today is that it's our wedding anniversary today and 33 years ago our not asking for a clap but 33 years ago on the Sunday we got married at Christchurch in Jerusalem I'm daring to show a clip but this is hopefully the vows bit I'm not sure how good the sound quality is to wait for two hours
back to our place afterwards to watch the rest. Just a reminder that the vows in one way or another that we use there, that was my father-in-law, Leslie, who was marrying us, that those vows used then have been used in one form or another for centuries and have changed very little. I, but I did discover in my research that there was one vow from the English marriage service in 1085, I think when it was maybe last used, that the bride's vow included a promise to be bonny and buxom in bed and at boards. What might, you, what might that mean for us today? And before we jump to conclusions, bear in mind that words have changed their meaning. Even for us now, when we say wireless, we're not thinking of a radio. When we're saying a mouse, it's something else these days. And so we can, you get the gist, words can change their meaning. So apparently, the meaning then for this, for this promise that was being made was by the wife was um, that bonny was a word from French, of course. Bon, meaning good. Buxom, apparently it was an old German word meaning pliant or obedient. And board was simply where the food was put, on the sideboard. And so it meant meal times. And the bed simply meant night time. So the promise to be bonny, buxom, in bed and in board, translated today for us, is to behave properly and obediently through night and day. Is that a disappointment? I don't know. But perhaps it's just a reminder, and important to remember, that when we read Scripture, just to be mindful and to ask the question... What did that statement that Paul made or Jesus made then mean for the culture of that day? And how does that apply for us today? Because, of course, we can then get misunderstandings depending on our interpretation or understanding for the words being used. Paul makes reference to Jesus and so that's why I thought it was perhaps more helpful to focus particularly on this conversation Jesus has with these Pharisees who were trying to pin him down in a controversial debate that was going on at that time. Let me say this is a sensitive area that touches all of our lives in one way or another marriage and divorce and all that comes with that and I'm sure one, in one way or another we've all been touched by it whether that's personally or through family relationships it can be messy and painful both marriage and divorce it's an area of interpretation that I've discovered and I'm sure you've discovered that scholars may differ on in their opinions 
and interpretations over the years. I have to say I've been blessed with reading the insights of David Instone Brewer, who is a, a Baptist, uh, accredited Baptist minister and a, an academic in Cambridge in Tyndale, uh, the Tyndale um, Research Centre there, and who has done extensive research on first century marriage and divorce um, around the time of Jesus. I would recommend any of his reading there to perhaps help you. So Jesus, let's just look at when Jesus was put to the test. And they asked Jesus, and they asked Jesus this question as they gathered around him, like they often did, trying to pin him down. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And if you notice, Jesus' response, his immediate response, was not to remind them about the laws of divorce or separation, but his immediate response was to focus on what marriage was all about. So he emphasizes what marriage is all about. And um, we're gonna, I'm going to just glance at that as he has Jesus reflects on the Old Testament, which is what they were handling at that time, God's breathed word. And so Jesus reflects on some of the Creator's instructions there in Genesis. And so we see that Jesus champions marriage. That marriage is God's invention for a man and a woman. It's to be complementary. He made us co workers it's a partnership yes with different roles maybe but it's a partnership it's not one lording it over another because we all know that when one starts doing that you're really in trouble but the roles are to complement each other I love Matthew Henry's commentary on that Genesis passage he said note that the woman was made of a, of a rib out of the side of Adam not made out of his head to rule over him nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved Marriage is God's invention. Marriage was intended to be permanent, for keeps. We see there in Genesis chapter 2 there, verse 24, it's about leaving and cleaving. It's letting go of mum's apron strings, if you like, and clinging to your chosen partner. And so your partner becomes your best supporter. You know, when the whole world is against you and you're struggling in your difficulties, whether it's at work or in the family or wherever it is, your other half should be your best supporter. And when the kitchen sink's been thrown at you, even whether you agree with it or not, you're their best supporter. And you're standing with them, come what may, because you promised to do so. 
They're your best encourager. They're your confident, the safe place to be just as you are. No airs and graces. They're your best friend. And we know those things don't just happen if we keep those things superficial. That in all relationships, in all the dynamics of our relationships, we have to work hard and there is compromise in those relationships. But there's a binding covenant to one's partner. An oath, a vow, a promise is made before God and um, to our other half and to those that would come witnessing for better or for worse and to be faithful to each other. The first loyalty isn't to parents anymore. It's to each other. And sometimes that can be some of the challenges. Marriage is, creates that new unit to become one. There's a sexual union. One flesh literally means to be glued together. As the song goes, and no doubt my wife's heard me sing it now and again because I'm always singing all around the house. I only have eyes for you, dear. It's seen as the height of our commitments in giving to one another, to two becoming one, and a work of new creation, we pray, may come out of that in going forth and multiplying. But I want to just emphasize this morning that when we make those vows, it isn't all about sex. I hope those of you that have taken those vows realize that there are other commitments and other oaths that you're taking at that time. So, as much as there is the aspect of sex and the oneness, There is also deep social, psychological and spiritual union that comes about. Some of you will know of the profound sense of loss following the death of your life partner. It wasn't just about missing sex. And there's no easy way of parting when your lives have been woven together to become one. The marriage vows were for complete faithfulness in all things, as I've just said, not just sex. We still have today words and vows which refer back to the Old Testament and the New Testament. You may be surprised to know that we find in Exodus chapter 21 there, here, I'll just read it first, where we read, it's a, a case law being brought, and it says, if a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. 
If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. So we get a glimpse of some of the commitments being made in marriage. And this is where a, uh, there's a, um, a, a slave who has married their master and in days of polygamy, where they may have gone and, and married someone else, actually the law was stating, whoa, hang on, don't neglect, the, the, don't neglect your first wife of food, of clothing, and of sexual intimacy. You see, there were other obligations made in those promises. And so I think we can read a biblical pr- principle from that. If that was okay for the slave wife, then surely it should count just as much for the free wife. And so we see promises being made, not just for sexual intimacy, but a promise to, to provide food and clothing and physical affection and faithfulness. We read in Ephesians, In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care, you might say nourish, for their body just as Christ does the church. So it seems that there were promises being passed down the centuries that we might feed and clothe and we're given the demonstration here of a man if he's looking after himself if he's feeding and clothing himself the same expectation is with one's partner so Paul was saying that husbands should love and feed and clothe their wives using the obligations we see there in Exodus it's important just to hold Hold that in your heads because that will come in into the debate that Jesus has in a moment. The cold cynic, of course, would say that lifelong commitment is a nice idea, but it simply doesn't work. Maria Collerell said, I never married because there was no need I have three pets at home which answer the same purpose as a husband. I have a dog which growls every morning, a parrot which swears all afternoon, and a cat that comes home late at night. (laughs) Paul writes about the faithful commitment of a husband and wife. He He writes... Earlier on there in Ephesians 5, you will know it well. It's repeated maybe often at marriage services as well. Wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> as to the Lord. It's often quoted, but when you read that in context, please do. When we read it in context, it's talking about being filled and go on being filled. Read it again. And then if you carry on reading it, the verse before it says, wives submit to your husbands, it also says, submit to each other, 
to one another. So actually, it is a two-way submission too. It is a partnership. It's not one above the other. And sometimes, we can twist these to bring power on one side and not on the other. But of course, you have to bear in mind, it goes on to say something powerful about the husband's duties as well, that the husband should love their wives as Christ has loved the church. I, as I said to Jack, my son-in-law, when he married my daughter Annie, that this is a partnership, not a di- dictatorship, and that he will make it very easy for Annie to submit to him when he loves her like Christ loved the church. A sacrificial love. Who wouldn't want to submit to such love like that? It's a covenant. It's unconditional promises being made for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. This wasn't in the small print. And Jesus' focus was on total commitment in marriage for all couples. His focus wasn't on divorce. But this was the pressing thing that the Pharisees were wanting to press down on Jesus. Yeah, 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 we know about the marriage bit, but what about the divorce bit? You see, centuries ago, believe it or not, they were as human as us. And they made exactly the same mistakes that we make. And they probably thought very similar to us as well. But it seems to me, my understanding of of Scripture and and what Jesus was trying to emphasize is that divorce is a last resort as opposed to the first resort when something is going wrong. Divorce is a last resort. Do everything possible to prevent it. Someone said Adam and Eve had an ideal marriage He didn't have to hear all about the men she could have married and she didn't have to hear about how well his mother cooked. (laughs) But some of the major conflicts areas in marriage are down to poor communication. Time and time again I've come across difficult situations where it's been poor communication. And it's been making assumptions of others as well. Work situations, in-laws, children, money, sex, housework, personal habits, toothpaste cap being left off, toilet seat being left up. ill health and ageing and they pressed Jesus and the question that they asked him was didn't Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away you see the only wording that was compulsory in a Jewish divorce 
was to write a certificate of divorce, to give it to their wife, and it simply had written on this piece of paper, you are free to marry any Jewish man you wish. That's how it worked. Squiggle on a piece of paper, there you are, love. Everyone in the first century, from Roman, Jewish or Egyptian, had the same understanding about this certificate of divorce, which was given to the woman to enable her to remarry. Otherwise, where would her support come from? And how would she survive? And so the Pharisees were referring to this ongoing debate that was happening at the time of Jesus of how to interpret certain parts of the law and this related particularly to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're not going to read it all, but the bit that they're focusing on is the beginning of the chapter there, which says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes a certificate of divorce, he gives it to her, and sends her from his house. You can carry on reading the rest of that story if you like, but that's the, this is the hub of the debate. The debate at that time was centered on two interpretations by two rabbis, Rabbi Hillel on one side, Rabbi Shemaiah on the other. Both influential, both having disciples who were following their interpretation. Of course, Rabbi, what should I do? And they would go to the Rabbi and ask for guidance. Rabbi, what does it say? How do you interpret this? And the followers of Hillel emphasized the thought of displeasing. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, or translated in Matthew 19, for any cause. If a man marries a woman who, uh, who becomes displeasing to him, you know, for any reason, can he then just write this certificate of divorce? And for some, that was being interpreted very trivially. In other words, if, um, if the wife had burnt the tea, then he could write her a certificate of divorce for any cause. For any cause. Well, I guess there might not be too many of us around married. If you were picking on any reason that was displeasing to you. But that seemed to be the predominant reason for divorce during the time of Jesus. And it was the most popular reason simply because there was no proof needed. There was no court case. There was no public shame. We even see that just with Joseph and Mary in the nativity bit. Do you remember Joseph was wanting to just give her a, a certificate of divorce and keep it quiet and not bring it to the courts and keep... That was the practice then. For any cause. However, the followers of Shemaiah interpreted something indecent... I got this right here. 
forgive me. Yeah, that's what I meant to put them alongside each other. The question being asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Hillel was stressing the displeasing for any cause. And the other rabbi was emphasizing not displeasing, but something indecent. Something indecent or marital um, oh I haven't got the quote there sorry or as we read in Jesus' response as well marital unfaithfulness marital unfaithfulness so the Jewish argument about the law rumbled on which is it Jesus? is it for any and every cause? she's burnt the tea she was late home or is it on the other side of the argument for marital unfaithfulness much more restricted as to the reasons why they could bring a divorce how did Jesus respond? well we see that Jesus' response was that he said that Moses permitted the divorce certificate because your hearts were hard It wasn't the ideal situation, but he was saying in effect that the hardness of hearts kills off any relationship. Hardness of hearts has been interpreted as being stubborn, as being unrepentant, as resisting God's ways and wanting your own. Someone who can't receive or extend forgiveness creating a veneer of bitterness that warps that relationship. And so divorce was permitted to protect the hard-hearted person from destroying his or her spouse. This wasn't how God had created it or meant it to be. And perhaps the challenge for us is we all need to check our hearts for any hardness of hearts, whether that's in church whether that's in our marriage relationships and that we seek to guard from it otherwise it will destroy our relationships that divorce is painful however we try and do it however amicable we try and work it divorce is painful when two have become one Again, remember, it's not just sexual bond, but a spiritual, emotional, psychological, family bonds. So, when you rip two people apart after being joined together, it's not easy to do. It can be painful. There are repercussions there's a ripple effect we all know something of that pain and hurt and Jesus was clearly against any cause of the, any, any cause divorce in other words the Hillels who were saying any cause any reason yeah just get rid of her or get rid of him for that matter just turn around now you're not welcome anymore is another song but we won't sing that one 
Jesus was clearly against the any cause argument of, on no grounds um, of, of any reason of trivialising the marriage and offering no protection to the innocent victim. Jesus saw the any cause argument as illegal or groundless. It's not a proper divorce. And therefore, if the person remarried, hence that's why it was seen as committing adultery, because if they were given the certificate of divorce for having trivialised it, they burnt the tea, Jesus is saying, that isn't right. It's not a good enough reason. Therefore, they will commit adultery if they're going elsewhere. So Jesus' emphasis was to try and do everything possible to maintain those bonds and be reconciled. His emphasis was with the Shemaiah um, um, rabbi of marital unfaithfulness. That's where he landed. Marital unfaithfulness. So perhaps for those who may be struggling in their marriages, before we jump to giving that certificate of divorce, if you like, for whatever reasons it might be, then I guess the counsel is, don't wait until it's got that far. Be honest with each other. Seek help and counsel. Set aside time to deal with the issues. Those unresolved issues are a major factor in making marital affairs attractive. Listen to your partner. Don't make assumptions. Be prepared to say sorry and forgive. And pray together. And then we come in verse 9 of that chapter 19 that Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness. So there are exceptions. There are exceptions to get divorced and be released from that commitment when we're married Jesus gave the exception of marital unfaithfulness. And he appears to be emphasizing the covenant-breaking circumstances that destroy a marriage and break the bonds of trust. Many interpret that as adultery only, marital unfaithfulness. Again, I want to just ask you, those that of your who got married, was it all just about adultery or about the, the sexual bit no it wasn't that's a massive thing don't get me wrong that is a massive thing but was marital unfaithfulness just about the reason to be divorced being adultery Paul also offers an exception for divorce we read it in chapter 7 there of 1 Corinthians of the case where a believing partner is abandoned by their non-believing by their non-believing partner note that Paul encourages the believer to stay with their non-believing partner 
He doesn't encourage them to abandon them once they come to Christ and they realize that they're um, unequally yoked or whatever you want to call it. He's telling them, stay there. You've made vows. Be committed. Be faithful. But what he is saying is if things get so awkward and for whatever reasons that the unbelieving partner, because of course when you've got a believing and an unbelieving partner, well your magnetic north is very different. One of the joys of being married to my wonderful wife is we can pray together. It's that we're both looking for the same things is that we're, we're both wanting to be on fire for Jesus. And we recognize we let each other down. But we've learned to say sorry and put those things right sooner rather than later. I'm going off track. Forgive me. So Paul was saying, if your non-believing partner decides to abandon you and desert you, then he's saying, you can't do much about that. If they're choosing to go elsewhere, whether it's because they can't cope with you because you're a Christian now and, and whatever else it might be, but they're choosing to do what everybody else is doing, any cause, and they're clearing off. Well, he's saying, it's tough, but you can't do too much about that. Let them go and be released from it. And he's seen that as an abandonment. But what he is saying is, if you, if you choose to leave that marriage because it's you that's going, because they're a non-believer, he's saying that's a groundless reason. That's going into the any cause. And he's not agreeing with that. So he's agreeing with Jesus about being faithful. And he also says, and then when you go and remarry, then marry another follower of Jesus. It's a real challenge, isn't it? But we all know of the heartaches when our other half might not be a lover of Jesus. That doesn't mean they can't have and have had a great marriage. So please, I'm not standing in judgment here. But it can make it quite difficult and challenging. So it would appear that what Jesus had said, Paul um, agreed about marital unfaithfulness and being abandoned by your partner was seen as destroying and dissolving your marriage and therefore freeing the wronged partner to remarry without committing adultery. Where, where there, were there not other exceptions other than adultery and abandonment? when we make those marriage vows and we go back to the Old Testament of their, that text case law in Exodus 21 the vows used there in Ephesians the vows include also provision of food and of clothing of conjugal rights of being faithful surely the vows we make are not just about our sexual union I mean, we see it as straightforward when somebody has committed adultery. And if that can't be mended and forgiven for whatever reasons, it seems that is clear-cut. But what about 
those other halves who have been used and abused? What about those other halves who have been neglected and the money has been withheld from them and they've not been able to buy food? What about the other halves who have been manipulated and abused physically or psychologically? Surely, my understanding pastorally of Scripture is that it gives a way out. And it's saying that the promises have been broken. You promised to love me, to cherish me, and those are being broken now. And it seems to me that when the covenant is broken, it's the one who has broken that covenant, not the innocent victim who has broken that covenant before God and would be released to marry again. Pastorally, we can't demand forgiveness nor that folks stay in a broken marriage. They must conclude with God's help when enough is enough. Only they know if their partner is truly repentant and only they know if they have lived with the consequence if they can live with the consequences of going back to an abusive situation. Pastorally, when somebody has come to me in a difficult, neglected situation, I would never ever encourage them to go back into it. I would always be wanting to provide protection for them. It seems that's what Jesus would do. Divorce isn't the unforgivable sin, is it? Can't be. But God hates it because of the destruction it does to families, lives and communities. And we know it doesn't happen in isolation, but it has that ripple effect. It's painful. And we need the loving wisdom and compassion of God to bring healing and restoration to broken and torn lives. God seeks to protect the vulnerable and the abused by offering a way out. A God of second chance. So, in my opinion, for too long the church has driven people away from God when in their darkest moments we should have been offering protection to the battered wife or husband instead of telling them to go back to them. For too long the church has shook its head at men and women who have been left high and dry because their partner has committed adultery or abandonment. And we've painted them with the same brush and we've written them off. There's too many painful pastoral stories. What would Jesus be saying? For those who feel battered and and, and bruised through no fault of your own, I sense God is saying, I am for you, not against you. I believe in you can you believe in my transforming power? Did you know God knows of that sense of betrayal and abandonment with his relationship with Israel 
who committed spiritual adultery. So as followers of Christ, let's celebrate and safeguard our marriages and pray for our marriages too. This is a journey of restoration and grace for me. Can we reach out and offer acceptance and welcome to those who feel they may have failed and lead them to the cross to find forgiveness and healing? The final point is that... Oops, sorry. Forgetting (laughs) all these other slides. Carried away. final point being marriage is seen at the beginning of scripture in Genesis it's also seen at the end of scripture in Revelation and we see that beautiful image of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride being lovingly prepared it tells of a remarkable sacrificial love story again Paul says wives submit to your husbands as love their wives as Christ loved their church and gave himself up for it. If your marriage is to tell a story, what is it saying to others? I realise this is tough stuff. We're going to pray. Equally sorry, I realise you may not agree with everything I've said we're still going to pray let's pray Thank you that we were saved through grace. By grace through faith. Not through any works of our own. We recognize we fall well short of your standards of holy living, Lord. But we come seeking to be open to your Holy Spirit. To come and change us and renew us. We recognize, Lord, that all this stuff we've been talking about, a breakdown in relationships, is just as evident in the church life as it is in our community. Lord, we want to say we're sorry for the way in which we do hurt each other. We pray, Lord, you would help us to be reconcilers and bridge builders in our relationships. We just pray, Lord, for those that are married in in our church family at this time. Lord, a sense of it coming under attack. A sense, Lord, that our laws are making it even easier on groundless, any cause, reasons to divorce. Father, we just pray for a protective edge. Father, we pray for an increased 
intimacy within our households. Lord, we pray you would be our shield and our defense. Lord, help us to be the best provider and supporter that we can be. Help us to love and keep on loving. We need your help, Lord. And we pray that where there are fractures in any of our marriages, then, Father, we pray that you might pour in your healing balm and that you would give wisdom and discernment that, Lord, they might receive wise counsel to get on track, back on track, and to renew their intimacy and keep their love alive. Lord, we pray too for those who are living with the repercussions of painful separations and divorce. Lord, have mercy. Lord, we pray for your healing and restoring touch to body, mind, and spirit. And we pray that you would set them free. Set them free from any of the chains that would seem to continue to hold them. Set them free and bring your peace. We ask it in the name of Jesus.